Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Does God have enemies? Does God have enemies? That's the question we're looking at today, and I, I wonder... And probably you're wondering, why ask such a question? I mean, it's not what you, I'm sure, woke up was first thing on your mind, right? You weren't sitting around thinking this morning, huh, I wonder if God has enemies. So why ask ask the question? In a 2003 videotape, Osama bin Laden, you know, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks, said, killing the infidels that is, non-Muslims, specifically Jews and Christians, that's my words, is a good thing that will get you to heaven. Bin Laden was simply expressing the Muslim doctrine of jihad. Those who die while waging jihad against the enemies of God will enter paradise instantly. All their sins washed away by their own spilled blood as well as the blood of the infidels that has been shed. In response to Muslim persecution in 1095, Pope Urban II, in a doctrine that sounds a lot like jihad, promised immediate forgiveness of sins and declared, your eastern brothers have asked for your help. Turks and Arabs have conquered their territories. I, or rather the Lord, beg you, destroy that vile race from their lands. And thus began a series of atrocities known as the Crusades. In his 1925 autobiographical manifesto, Mein Kampf, Adolf Hitler declared, I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. The result of his conduct, as we know, was well over six million Jews destroyed as he invoked divine purpose. So does God have enemies? It's an unsettling question, but like it or not, it's a question that has shaped much of history, and we are a part of history. We are, our lives are shaped by how history moves. And terrible answers to that question have led to horrendous outcomes. Horrendous outcomes. And so today what I want to do is provide what I believe is a, in a certain way, comprehensive answer to a very complicated question. If we've not yet met, my name's Christian. I am the lead pastor here. And, and just as a reminder, we're not asking this question arbitrarily, right? Because again, we just woke up and thought this would be fun to talk about today. That's not why. In fact, we've been uh, doing, as we've been doing throughout this series, we've been in this series, major, Minor Prophets, Major Mission, um, and, and as we've been doing throughout this series, we'll see that the answers to eternal questions like, does God have enemies, have timeless implications for how we walk with God today. And so with that, what we're going to do today is turn to Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, and I, I think that our message today will will hopefully reflect that as well. But let's turn to Obadiah. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is what we find. 
the vision of Obadiah. This is what the Lord God has said about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord. An envoy has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us go to war against her. So here's some basics before we get into what is Obadiah all about. Here's just some basics, some background. This is a 21 verse, what we've labeled as 21 verses, right? That came later. Obadiah didn't put the verse numbers there. But 21 verse collection of of poetry, really, explaining this thing that was going to take place, that, that God was saying was going to happen related to the country, the nation of Edom. And here's this man behind it that God's using named Obadiah. It means one who serves Yahweh. And this is actually a very common name in the Old Testament. There's a number of Obadiahs who show up, but it's not, uh, but we're pretty sure this is the only sighting of this Obadiah. He doesn't show up in, in other places specifically. But here's Obadiah, this servant of Yahweh who's been called upon to speak about Edom and and, and specifically speak to Israel about Edom. Now, I mentioned this is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It was most likely, there's some debate, but it was most likely written within about 30 years after uh, the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Babylonian Empire was the biggest empire of the time. They come in, in part, out of judgment. God told Israel what would happen and, and Judah what would happen. And so the Babylonians come in and they destroy Jerusalem. In 586 BC. So, sometime um, in, in this period, a few decades within that time frame, Obadiah speaks about then Edom. And, and it's a distinctive book because it doesn't accuse either Israel or Judah of wrongdoing. The last few weeks, we've been looking at these other minor prophets, and usually in the crosshairs is either Israel or Judah or both. But here, there's, there's no accusing Israel or Judah of wrongdoing. Instead, Obadiah is given this vision. We're, we're told it's a vision, and it's a vision regarding this ancient rival, Edom. And here's where we find there's actually a backstory, and we're, we're invited to, to lean in, and as we read this, if we read this and we don't know the backstory, it might seem just really out of left field. Okay, so, so here's just very quickly the backstory. So Israel and Edom are the nations, these are two distinct nations that emerge from two brothers. You've heard of them, most likely. These two brothers are Jacob and Esau. Out of Jacob comes, and his name becomes Israel, but out of him comes a nation, Israel. And Jacob's brother, Esau, Esau's the older one, out of Esau comes this other nation, Edom. You go back to Genesis 25 to 27, there's a famous story of where Jacob, the younger brother, cheats Esau, his older brother. Jacob was a guy who liked to stay indoors and cook and, and do things you know, that were just more indoor type of activities. Whereas Esau was this hairy man who liked to go out in the wilderness and be a burly, hairy man and kill things and that kind of deal. And so, so you, you have these two brothers, but Jacob is this kind of deceitful one. And he cheats Esau, his older brother, out of his birthright, okay, which is this, this inheritance, as well as out of the blessing of his father. And so this is where this conflict emerges from these two brothers. And again, then from there, there are these two nations that eventually are formed. Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 to 20, explain uh, this time, this occasion where uh, God has brought the Israelites 
out of slavery, okay, out of the exit from the Exodus, right? With Moses, they're led by Moses. They come out of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and they're making their way back into the promised land, and they ask for passage through Edom. And Edom says, uh-uh. And so the result is that Israel has to go this really long route to get up to the promised land. And so there's this further conflict. Because in this moment when you know, they're, they're, Israel's trying to be rescued, Edom says, we're not helping you. So this conflict continues to grow. Amos chapter 1, 6-9, we looked at this last week. Amos also explains this ongoing conflict between the two countries. And then in 2 Kings 25 is where we find what I explained earlier, 586 B.C., Babylon invades Jerusalem. And as we'll see, the people of Edom were more than content to watch their sibling nation suffer. Okay? So that's what's been going on. There's a lot more here, but I mean, just in short, that's this backstory. Two brothers that become two nations, and there's this rivalry going on between the two of them. And so Obadiah is given a, vis- a vision regarding this ancient rival Edom. Why? Why? Well, to explain this, I think in big picture, to explain that all people and every person will answer to God. All people and every person will answer to God, will answer to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And last week, we looked at at Amos, and we said if you're ever tempted to think that God is disinterested or distracted, know this, that God certainly pays attention. God pays attention. So at this center of addressing Edom, if you read the, the, whole, the whole book, we're not going to read the whole book, even though it's just 21 verses, we're not going to read the whole thing, but really at the center of, the, the, there's two sections to this vision, and at the center of it is verse 15. I want you to hear what's addressed, because it's, it's addressing Edom, but at the center there's this statement. For the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. See, so Edom is being utilized. There's, there's a real problem that Edom has. Well, again, we're going to look at that. But Edom's being utilized in order to make a statement about something universal. In fact, if you go into Hebrew, and, and there are times the biblical authors do this intentionally. They're, they're helping us see certain things, and, there's, and it's found in the language in the names of people. That's why I've been giving you at times uh, the, the background on these prophets themselves, what do their names mean. If you go back in the Hebrew, okay, there's three letters that make up the word Edom. Okay, Hebrew didn't have vowels in, in ancient Hebrew. There was no vowels. There was just consonants, and, and the vowels were assumed if you knew Hebrew. You just knew how to say what you were talking about. Okay? And so those three, those three consonants that would make up Edom are the same three consonants that make up the name Adam. And so what we understand is that what what the author is doing here, what God is doing here, is using Edom, this one country, this one person, to point us to humanity, to Adam. Adam means humanity. And so it's pointing us to this picture of all humanity. What we find in Edom, in this, this message from Obadiah to Edom, is a parable of sorts that's meant to be something for all of us to understand. It's not just applied to to this particular nation. It's applied to all the nations. And this is the same kind of idea that we find when we go into the New Testament and find 
Again, just like I've said, that all people and every person will answer to God. Philippians 2, 10 through 11. We're told, and we're going to look at this more in depth later, but that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All nations, every people, and all persons will answer to God. That's big picture, what we need to understand. Now, specifically... We want to see, well, what, what does this mean for us? Okay. In light of the fact that, all that, that, that there will be judgment of all peoples and every person in light of this one standard, which is Jesus Christ. But what do we answer for? If we're going to answer to God, what do we answer for? Can we, can we boil it down? Right? That's a, it, again, it could be a complicated, it is a complicated question, but can we boil it down? What do we answer for? And in Obadiah's message to Edom, we see the greatest threat to our relationship to our Maker. The greatest threat to our relationship, just again and again, you go all through the scriptures, and here's what you find. The greatest threat to our relationship to God is pride. And so know this, pride pits us against God. What Obadiah wants us to understand is that our pride will pit us against God, just as it pits Edom against God. Obadiah, verses 2 through 4, this is the picture we have of, of the judgment that's coming on Edom. Look. I will make you insignificant among the nations. You will be deeply despised. Your arrogant heart has deceived you. You who live in clefts of the rock in your home on the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you seem to soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, even from there, I will bring you down. This is the Lord's declaration. Again, a little bit of background here. There's that statement in verse 3, you who live in the clefts of the rock. Or if you, you look at your, if you're reading in your own paper Bible, there might be a little note there that says that clefts of the rock could be translated Selah, which today we know as Petra. And we're going to get there here in a second. But I want you to see, here's a picture of Edom, okay, where, where Edom is. Here's a picture of Edom. You see on the left, on the left side of the Dead Sea, okay, or western side of the Dead Sea, You've got Judah, and then up north there is Israel. But down in that southeast corner is Edom. In what is today, present-day Jordan. Okay? That's the country, what we know of, as Jordan. So present-day Jordan. Now you want to see a picture of this area in Edom. Here's a picture of what this area that's being referred to here in Obadiah. It looks like this. Clefts of the rock. You see why it would be called of the rock. There's these jagged rocks, just long ranges of these rock formations. And then that looks like, well, it's not that big a deal. Maybe it's just some, some little peaks and valleys here, but, but these are enormous. Okay? This is, these are tall, tall mountain cliffs. And among there, are people lived. These Edomites lived among these rocks. In fact, they lived and created civilizations such as this. Here's a picture of Petra. If you go and you visit Jordan, this is the prime tourist spot. And go into Jordan, go visit the ancient city of Petra. And this goes on for a long while. You have to walk, you have to like hike your way in. There's guys who will, will help, will provide you know, burrows for you to ride, and you know, it's, it's a big tourist thing. But, but you get to go and explore all the, the great city of Petra here. Now, if you're a movie fan, Indiana Jones fan, you might recognize 
Petra. Okay? There's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indy and his pops in front of that lost city. So, so here's this situation. And, and there's some other famous people that have visited Petra. So here's another picture of famous people visiting Petra. Okay? <laughs> A few years ago, I had the distinct pleasure to get to go and, and be there. It's amazing. It's, it's an amazing place. But, but see what's going on here. Is that they're, they're thinking, look, we live in this mountain fortress. We, we've built ourselves into the rock. Who can bring us down? We've got, we've got it made. We have this natural protection. So the basis of their geography, they think, we're good. Nobody can deal with us. And God says, you, you think? I've got something else for you. And, and so I ask us this, what do you rely on to protect you? What do you hang your hat on? Right? Do, do you feel secure because of your knowledge or your achievements or your resources or your friends? See, we're all prone to that, right? To, to think that there's these things that will, will be our source of protection, our, our guardian. And here's the reality. Your, your knowledge, the things you understand how to do, your achievements, the things that have helped put you in different positions to succeed and have more opportunities, your resources, right? Your, your home and, and different things that, that do provide a, a, lo, a certain kind of security. Your friendship. All of these things are good gifts. And they're meant to be a tangible form of God's protection. But the trouble is, that we are all too quick to receive these gifts and then turn around and wave them in God's face as proof that we don't really need Him. Just like the Edomites. And what we find is as we do that, we are pitting ourselves against God. So Obadiah, again, is a parable of sorts, illustrating what we find elsewhere in Scripture. Proverbs 3, 34 says, He mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. Pride leads to mockery. We're going to talk about that here in a second. And then James 4.4, 4, New Testament. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. See, the world isn't a place so much as an approach. The Bible refers to the world or worldliness. It's not referring so much to a specific place, it's, it's referring to an approach. It's referring to a system of values that, in the words of author David Wells, displaces God and his truth to make what is wrong seem normal. So that's what we do, is we, we take what is wrong and we elevate it to being normal, and we, we elevate it above God and his truth. That's what the Edomites are being accused of. They've elevated themselves. They've seen the gifts of protection as the thing that will protect them from even their creator. All of a sudden, they're pitting themselves against God as if that's where you know, their, their stuff is their security, and we do the same. So what happens then as we do that? Not only does this pride pit us against God, but what we also find is it affects our, our horizontal relationships. Pride leads us, you see it there, to treat friends like enemies. That's the other thing that happens in Edom. Is that pride leads us to treat friends like 
enemies. And so here's the sins that Edom is accused of, sins against Judah. And we're told in, in verses 10 through 14, you will be covered with shame and destroyed forever because of violence done to your brother, Jacob. Again, there's this age-old story. And on the day you stood aloof, on the day strangers captured his wealth, while foreigners entered his city gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were just like one of them. Do not gloat over your brother in the day of his calamity. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Do not boastfully mock in the day of distress. Do not enter my people's city gate in the day of their disaster. Yes, you. Do not gloat over their misery in the day of their disaster, and do not appropriate their possessions in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off their fugitives, and do not hand over their survivors in the day of distress. Judah was being judged justly by God. They had, they, they had, done their, own, they had their own problems. God was justly judging them and bringing this, this discipline upon them. But in the wake of that, Edom watches from afar. And, and, and this is how it's even described. It's summarized like this, Psalm 137.7. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites said that day at Jerusalem. Destroy it. Destroy it down to its foundations. Right? Anybody, you have a sibling. Right? If you grew up with a sibling, and maybe you guys were, were close, but you know there, there's those moments where something happens, sibling does something wrong, and you might have had a little bit to do with it, but really, it's, it's their thing. Like, they've got to deal with mom and dad. And, and you're like, I don't really want to get caught up in this, but at the same time, you take a little bit of pleasure in watching them have to deal with mom and dad. And, and that's the kind of thing that's going on here, is, is the Edomites, like, they, they think, well, we're good. We, that, that's, that's their problem. And it's not just so much that they stand aloof, right? That would be one thing. If they just sort of stood by... Again, the judgment was needing to come. But not just that. Instead, they sit there and join in. Hey, can we help you, Babylonians? You need a hand? So here their brother, Judah, is down, and they're just kicking him. Just heaping it on. Oh, oh yeah, Mom and Dad? You, you, well, actually, there's, you, know, you, you can do that, right? Well, oh, you, that was a bad thing? Well, you know, there was this thing that happened last week. Did you know about that? Right? I mean, that this is this tendency in our, in our sibling relationships to pour it on. And that very thing is what's going on here with Edom and Judah. And this kind of you know, breakdown in relating is possible in all of our relationships. And so 1 Corinthians 1.11, there's this letter to the Corinthian church, to this group of, of new Christians. And we're told, it's been reported to me, this is Paul writing to them, it's been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. 1 Corinthians is written largely because there's this, these factions growing among God's people in this church. They're, they're, this sibling rivalry is going on. And they're trying to figure out how they're different from each other instead of uniting around the thing that, unite, that brings them together. There's this rivalry going on. And it's the same kind of rivalry that James talks about in chapter 3. Verses 13 through 16, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he, could, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. 
Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. And see, that's what happens here. There's this kind of wisdom among the Edomites, this kind of pride that leads us to treat friends like enemies. You see, the way this works, if my security is built on what I have, right, on my, my resources, my knowledge, my achievements, my friendships, name it, if my security is built on those things, then other people who also have those things become reduced to just being threats to my security. All of a sudden, we start to see life as this zero-sum game where some people get it, can, can prosper, while, and, and if they prosper, that means other people have to suffer. But that's not the way it's supposed to work in God's world. People are more than just threats to my security. It, it shows up in a lot of ways. I, I know somebody who, when they were a little kid, went to daycare or preschool, and, and were pretty clever, and they would realize that the, the best toy, if you want to play with the best toy, um, and, you know, there'd be this line, and everybody would want to play with it. And so if you wanted access to the best toy, then, then this person figured out that the way to get access to the, the thing you really wanted was to go play with something else and act like you were having the time of your life. And then everybody in the class would go, oh, this is awesome, okay, and they would, would go play with that thing, and now all of a sudden the thing you wanted was free game. This is the way, it, you know, it's a funny story going back, but if we're not careful, this is the kind of thing that happens in our relationships. We start to turn friends into enemies. In our pride, we think, I, I want what I want. How am I going to get it? We start crafting these schemes to get that. And we're all guilty of this. We've all used people for our own ends. We've all taken pleasure at someone else's pain. We've reveled in the fact that someone that we envied got knocked down a peg. Because right? that's, that's often what happens, is people have good things. Things that maybe even they're prone to make, feel like make them secure. But we too want those things. We envy those things. And so we get in this mentality, we think, well, if they're knocked down a peg, that paves the way for me to rise. This is what pride does. We've all likely even profited from someone else's unjust loss. We've all been part of pride's power to turn enemies into friends. But there's something that has even greater power. What Obadiah wants us to see, what God wants us to see through Obadiah and through Edom is that while pride will turn enemies into friends, I mean, friends into enemies, humility can turn enemies into friends. Humility can turn enemies into friends. Here in the middle of the accusations against Edom, we're told this, verse 8, In that day, this is the Lord's declaration, will I not eliminate the wise ones of Edom and those who understand from the hill country of Esau? Here, here what's happening is, the people of Edom are being described, they're being categorized sarcastically as the wise ones. Those who understand. You see, again, they have the security of this place in which they live, but they see themselves as better. 
They're the wise ones. They're the ones who have things figured out. And what we're told is that the wisdom, this quote-unquote wisdom of Edom would be dealt with. And it was. But Obadiah is pointing beyond just Edom to Adam. Beyond one nation to all the nations. And so here's how Obadiah's vision wraps up. Verse 19, people from the Negev will possess the hill country of Esau. Those from the Judean foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will possess the territories of Ephraim and Samaria, while Benjamin will possess Gilead. The exiles of the Israelites are in Halah, and who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, as well as the exiles of Jerusalem who are, on, who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors will ascend Mount Zion to rule over the hill country of Esau, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. The wise of the world will be judged and will be found lacking. What we find here, Obadiah is saying, is those in low positions, who maybe the resources don't elevate them, but who have trust in the Lord, they will be raised up. Those who are subjected to the oppression of pride will become rulers in the truest, highest kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's the vision of not just what's going to happen in Edom and Judah, but the vision for all eternity. And how does that happen? Well, it turns out there's, there's a different kind of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25 we're told this, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom... The world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. What does that mean for us? Jesus said it really well, Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Does God have enemies? Of course he does. Every one of you sitting here, myself included, at one point or another, has pitted themselves against God. Pridefully elevating our own understanding and doing harm to others made in the image of God. There's no nation where this isn't true. There's no tribe or people group untouched by this fatal flaw. No one who has lived or ever, or, or ever will live is untouched by the effects of of pride, except for one. 
And so we're told, Philippians chapter 2, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, humility in the hands of the one who is both least likely to need it and most likely to wield it, humility makes it possible for all people and every person to become not just a friend of God, but part of his family. If you've bowed the knee to Jesus already, you've received the the gift of new life that he offers us through the cross, through this foolishness in the world's eyes, then remind your friends that pride has no place among us. We have no, no basis for elevating ourselves above others. So I encourage you to, to consider where is pride creeping in? Where, where is it doing damage in relationships? And if you're here today and you've not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, then I tell you, as one who has had to be humbled, has found himself in that same spot, not, not out of elevating myself, but having come to the same place, I ask you, I tell you, humble yourself. Humble yourself that you will be exalted. Because that's the promise of Jesus. He will bring the wisdom and the power of the nations that pit themselves against God. He will bring those things down. But to those who accept his offer of friendship, he will raise us up. And you and I, friends, get to be a part of extending that invitation. Be a part of helping make friends for God for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, I do indeed thank you for the ways in which you teach us through history. It is your History. It's not just something rolling forward, out of control, just hoping that it might turn out okay, Lord. It is your story. And you, in all your wisdom and might, are weaving it to a good and glorious end. And graciously, you've given us a picture of your work in history to point us to the things that matter most. God, would you help us to admit where we exalt ourselves? Admit where we pit ourselves against you and against people that we, we actually really love and care about. And God, would you help us 
as apprentices of Jesus, to walk in his ways, to display the kind of humility that has turned us and can turn us from enemies into friends. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day. Thank you.